A spontaneous and unrehearsed interview. Hello and welcome to Curiosityness, episode 98 of Curiosityness. I'm Travis DeRose, and uh, maybe you're drinking a soda right now. Maybe you've had a soda in the past and you, you picked it up and you looked at it and you thought, man, why the hell am I drinking soda? Where does this fizzy water come from? This bubbly flavored sugary water? Well, that's what we're going to find out today. I'm have on Tristan Donovan. He is the author of a book called Fizz, How Soda Shook Up the World. So <laughs> we're going to learn about soda, the history of soda, where it came from, how it's kind of started off as like, you know, sparkling mineral water. And then they used it for curing things and healing ailments. And it, then they started flavoring it and uh, put it in soda fountains. And they started bottling it. And then Coca-Cola comes along. Pepsi comes along. They, we talk about the, you know, the cocaine and Coca-Cola. It was actually there. They were putting real drugs in this thing. So it, it's a really fun uh weaving deep story with a lot of little fun twists and turns to it. So I think you're going to enjoy the history and uh, the story of how soda came to be. So, uh, I mean, we'll just dive into it. Here is the episode with Tristan Donovan, the author of Fizz, and let's learn about some soda. Tristan, how you doing, man? Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, heck yeah, man. This is a this is a fun topic, something that uh, probably nearly every single person in the world has had a soda and uh, should be able to relate to this in some regard, I guess. Yeah, I, I think you you have to hunt really hard to find someone who hasn't tried a soda at this point. <laughs> right. I think in some places it's probably easier to get soda than water at this point. Yeah, right. Good point. It's probably true. Uh, so are you kind of... Uh, are you a big soda connoisseur, or are you just kind of a casual drinker? Um, I'm, I, I guess I fall into sort of somewhere in between. So um, obviously it, it's quite fattening, so I'm trying not to drink too much soda, but I do love soda. Yeah. And I do like sort of trying different tastes and things like that. So I, I mean, I even have a can of Dr. Pepper <laughs> right, right here. So um, yeah, I'm... Basically, I love my soda, trying to sort of ease back a bit. So, I, you know, when I get 60 or something, I still have some teeth and right. brain to get me out of a room. But, you know, essentially, I, I love soda. Yeah, man. I'm the same way where it's like, I, God, I swear, like I'll get in these moods or these zones where I just like crave soda and that's all I want to drink. But I got to like, I, right now I'm on this thing where I, I only allow myself to have it like two days a week, but on those two days, I could drink as much as I want of it, you know, I could, <laughs> I could bathe in it. So I, I, I get the, you got to limit it, but damn, it's so good. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's bad. I have terrible sweet tooth. <laughs> yeah. There's a really cool place, uh, in, uh, in the LA area called Galco's, like Galco's Gross, old world grocery or something like that. But now he used to be a grocery store, but he kind of switched into like a, uh, just specializing in selling soda so he has like hundreds of different varieties of sodas that you would like never find or hear about really and it's so fun to go there and you could just pull all these bottles and try all these weird sodas that you've never heard and they're freaking delicious they're so good Oh God! You, you make me envious. See, see the, um, I live in the UK, and um, we don't have the same kind of 
culture of soda. So some of the kind of obscure brands that I really like are only available in the US and they're hard to get in the US. So, I mean, here is just no hope whatsoever. So, yeah, it's quite frustrating. It's like, oh, God, it'd be great to have a store like that. that just yeah. aren't needed. <laughs> yeah, dude. It, yeah, it's a bummer, especially yeah when you find something or or try something that you like, and you're like, "Well, how the hell do I get more of it?" But <laughs> it's such small batches, and it's so hard to find. So I I appreciate that, but I am super lucky to have that place. It's like an hour drive for me, but I'll go once a month probably still. Hey, I might get a flight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, shoot, man. Let's just dive in. Well, let's mention your book. Your book is called Fizz: How Soda Shook Up the World. So. And that's, it's just kind of the, uh, sharing the history and the story of soda, right? Yeah. So essentially it's kind of the story of where did it come from and how did it end up so, so huge? <laughs> Basically that, that was the idea. So, I mean, it, it kind of kicked off with, I was just in a long, um, car journey. I, I was passenger and kind of gets a bit boring after a while, just being on the highway, just, oh, it's going on and on. And I was trying to think of a new book do and had a can of coke in the cup holder and it's like where did that come from where where did coke start i don't even know i've drunk this all my life i have no idea where it all started so basically got into kind of oh, I'd be curious I'll, I'll read about coca-cola and that was an amazing story and then started looking at others and it's like oh this is really amazing this stuff is kind of bizarre how big it it got because really it's quite kind of fizzy sugar water you know how's it got so big how's it built these giant companies and done so many crazy world-changing things um so you know as soon as i got into that i was like right this has got to be the book nice man yeah i I, it's it's probably a question that everybody's looked down at their cup holder or the coke can and and thought that but then no one dives into it except for you so i'm glad to have you on here and glad to have you you sharing the story so um yeah, can we just dive into it? Like, where does, how does soda get its start? Where does it come from? Right, well, um, it sort of starts way back in ancient history. So as, as there's always been kind of a few naturally fizzy springs. So essentially you have bubbles in your kind of soda because it's carbon dioxide. It gets mixed in with the water and that's what the bubbles are. Right. And... Basically, this exists naturally in a, a few places. It's not that common. Most spring water is still, but there was lots of these springs. And kind of ancient people go, wow, there is fizzing water. This must be curative in some way. So basically, people would go and bathe in it, thinking it was going to cure basically anything that they wanted. Uh, and this went on for centuries. So it's like this magic water <laughs> basically was people's view of it. Um, so, of course, people kind of thought it, it did things like cure scurvy. So you got to the stage in the 1700s where people are going on long journeys by ship and they're getting scurvy because they don't have any vitamin C and fresh fruits. Um, right. But yeah. they thought, well, fizzy water would solve that. So <laughs> let's try and invent <laughs> I know. Um, medical well. <laughs> um, so they, basically there was this big push to how do you carbonate water? So, you know, it was actually decades and decades of research of people trying to figure out what is this gas? Um, how do you put gas into water? Um, so this went on. And the guy who really kind of finally cracked it was Joseph Priestley, who's 
largely credited with being also the guy who discovered oxygen. And he lived in Leeds in the UK, and he was trying to create this as well. And he went to this brewery because the brewing vats produce a lot of carbon dioxide. And he did this experiment where he basically had some two jugs or containers of water and just kept sloshing them back and forth over this giant beer vat. And basically that kind of captured some of the carbon dioxide and kind of went, aha, I've figured out how to put it some gas into this water. And from there he created this elaborate piece of equipment with a kind of pig's bladder that you kind of pump to kind of squeeze in this carbon dioxide into it under pressure. And that was basically the first machine to start making fizzy water. So that was wow. the kind of crucial step. Okay. So they had, it, it occurs naturally in some places, but it's not, it's not everywhere. So they kind of had this idea, this concept of, of fizzy water, of carbonated water, but now they, and then, so all these people are like, well, shit, we got to make some more of this stuff and, and start selling it or whatever. So that's, that was the reason for them, for this guy kind of inventing basically uh, what artificial carbonated water, I guess, or, or yeah, forced yeah, carbonated so, water. Yeah, essentially, I, I, was, I think they called it aerated water at the time, but essentially that was it. It was artificially created fizzy water. Um, so he created this and kind of went and did this grand presentation to the Royal Society and in London. I have cracked this kind of thing that we've wanted to do for centuries. And, and this equipment was taken on sort of ships, kind of going, it's like, yeah, we're going to be safe from scurvy. Um, of course, they, they soon discovered it didn't make any difference. Yeah, right. But, um, <laughs> kind of slightly disappointing journey, I imagine, for the sailors. Yeah. This fizzy water is rubbish. Um, but essentially, that kind of threshold being crossed. And, you know, people still, even though it didn't cure scurvy, people still felt it was medicinal in some way. You, you know, it's still something that could have curative properties. So once this equipment's created, people were like, well, I'm going to start making fizzy water. And you get these kind of spas of artificially created fizzy water for people to bathe in. And, People like um, Schweppes came along and started trying to bottle it. So it Ooh. kind of basically, once Joseph Priestley cracked it, it was like, off it goes. Yeah, right. So what are the, um, so he kind of invented the, like the equipment or the process and then people would have, because it wasn't really being, I mean, you would kind of have to have the equipment, but what did it look like? Was it a super expensive? Was it big? What was the deal? How did it really work? It, I think how best to describe it. I mean, it, it probably wasn't that expensive. I mean, the glassware would have probably been a bit pricey, but basically you need bicarbonate soda and a bit of acid and, you know, it, it's stuff you could do in a school chemistry lab quite easily. Um, it's not, you know, it's certainly not very high tech by modern standards. You know, it's kind of a few pipes kind of here and there into a, a large vat of water and then you kind of pump it drop a little bit of acid on some marble or something to produce the gas. That, that's about it. It's, it's kind of deceptively simple equipment. I mean, it wouldn't be hard to recreate it these days in kind of your, your bedroom. So it's, it's more just someone actually piecing together how it should work was the big innovation. Right. And then after that, people were kind of, you know, they make the pump better and the kind of pressure kind of hold together better. But that, it was largely the same principle that Joseph Priestley was using the 
is still largely used today, but just on a much more expensive industrial scale. Yeah, they just kind of iterate on the technology. And then so when he was first kind of doing that, was the um, was it carbonated to like a level of that like a Coke can is now or was it less so? It would probably be less so. So when it took a long time to figure out how to bottle it and kind of keep it under pressure. That that was a quite a big long challenge that would follow. So if you drank it straight away after it had kind of been aerated, it was probably quite bubbly. But at that time they had um what were called stoneware bottles, so which were quite porous, so and would have a cork and they weren't very good at kind of holding anything. It's just kind of like pottery. I, I can't remember offhand exactly what it's made out of. It's like sort of clay kind of bottles basically. Okay. Um, but, but the fizz would just dissipate pretty quickly. I see. Like you have to keep it under pressure, you know, in the same way that you pour out, pour a glass of Coca-Cola, you leave it a while, it's going to go flat because all the gas is like, hey, disappear yeah. now. It's not, yeah. <laughs> free. Right, exactly. I love that. I actually, I kind of prefer my Coke a little, little flatter than it is fresh out of the can. So I'll open it and leave it in the fridge for like four or five hours and then drink it. <laughs> um, okay. So then, so this is going on. So they kind of basically invents uh, or figure out how to make uh, sparkling water, right? That's really all it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's nothing uh, more. Yeah, so it's sparkling water, but then what do they start? And they're you know bathing in it or whatever. They start to drink it. Do they start to add flavors, or how does it kind of progress from there? Yeah, so at some point people did start adding flavors, and this is the bit no one's quite sure where it began. Mm. Um, so obviously, with kind of alcohol, there was a tradition of mixing drinks, and you know maybe you'll have some spirits and you'll put in. You know, a bit of orange syrup or something can mix it up. So that that idea had long existed before anyone had made sparkling water. So it it wasn't like a kind of revolutionary leap, which I think is why it wasn't recorded very well. So basically it just starts, because what I did, I I sort of went back through kind of old newspapers that have been scanned digitally, just trying to find any references to... To kind of early pop, so you you get. I mean, this is seventeen hundreds. We're talking, so you know, record keep. It would just mainly be adverts, and you, it kind of just appears, sort of as if, mm. oh, it's you know, why not try our new lemon flavored aerated water? Um, but it's kind of done in such a matter of a fact way that it's hard to tell if that was like, oh wow, we've created lemon lemonade, basically. Um, right. So. So it is kind of something that just evolved and people just started putting syrups and they're mixing it up because ultimately kind of playing fizzy water is a bit boring. So yeah. I get kind of people selling it for worth. I stick some lime lime in here, it'll taste a bit nicer. And so I, I think it, people didn't really think about that side of it much as being that revolutionary. And they were just using kind of very basic flavors. There wasn't much mixing. It was kind of, you know, you're have lemon or i mean they, they have some strange choices you know you'll have celery <laughs> you know things like that you know you sure whatever flavor they went for it was like that one flavor it wouldn't be mixed up with others right okay yeah they're just kind of using whatever whatever flavors they have around so it's probably a lot of like fruit and stuff like that i would guess right yeah yeah very much right. so Okay. And then so like who, 
who's mixing these or doing these? Is it like uh, people at home are doing this with like a a soda stream type of deal, or is it? Do you have to go somewhere? How does that work? Well, I mean, sort of. I suppose this is where the story starts to diverge between what happened in Europe and what happened in North America, because oh. um, sort of Europe basically had a better, better supply of glass and bottles because this so early in the U.S.'s history that you know there wasn't even a glass factory in, in the U.S. at that time, so they were still having to import bottles uh, from from Europe. Right. So you know, bottles were extremely expensive and precious. Um, so you, Europe was kind of putting it in these stoneware bottles and doing it in bar. So it, it was trying to sell them on the streets to people and okay. do things like that. So it was kind of much more, I suppose, more similar to how we have soda today. In America, because of that bottle problem, a guy called Benjamin Silliman came along and thought, well, I've got a solution. I'm, I will open what we're now called a soda fountain, basically a, a store where you can go in and there'll be taps with different types of water and you can choose your water and pull, pull the lever and get the water of your choice. So he kind of started this. And, and at the time, they were just using plain water. Again, they were sort of modeling it on different springs around the world going, oh, this is like the spring up in Saratoga or this really? is spring in Germany, <laughs> you know, with wow. different sort of mineral salts to try and make it as close to the original spring as possible. So, huh. um, Wow. So it started with them just dispensing like different types of waters, like different types of mineral waters or something? Yeah. Yeah. Essentially it's basically, huh. you know, you, you want the spring, Bring water from here for whatever random ailment you've come in complaining about. You know, I mean, it was all kind of. You know, it, I, I suppose it's that era of the kind of patent medicine men kind of going around. You know, kind of medical science wasn't. There weren't much checks, and so you know, is who do you trust the most? You know, well, this guy sounds convincing with his water, and can't do me no wrong. It's water. You know, it's probably safer than the strange alcoholic bitters the traveling salesman's offering <laughs> that's true so, yeah at least they weren't killing people with that yeah yeah exactly <laughs> so so as, essentially that that was kind of big for a while and one, one of the challenges they had to overcome is um one of the guys who followed on from Silliman got this idea of like well you know it's hot it would be nice if these drinks were cold mm. and people were terrified of cold drinks they thought really? it would make them ill at a time because it, it was kind of saying well you'll get a chill inside and you know it'll be really bad for you you know people believe in hot drinks or kind of room temperature drinks and sure. hot drinks were probably a bit mm, i don't know <laughs> so you know it's this whole cultural change these sort of soda fountains had to do by kind of going no try chilled water it's much nicer right. um so you know, and there were kind of years where people were like, oh, I'm not going to do that. It's, you know, and drinking chilled drinks. I'm, I'm not suicidal. <laughs> you know, right, so, yeah. Bizarre it's so funny, of, the, the perception of new things that are just different, you know? Yeah. Man, so, okay, so that's so interesting. So it just kind of starts off as like almost how we have, you know, different bottled waters, how like Arrowhead tastes different from, you know, Fiji water or something. It's it's, it's, yeah. it's kind of similar to that, but it's more in like a, a fountain style. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, 
it's just like a sort of so classic soda jerk kind of pushing sure. the tap and it being pumped up from the room room below kind of style soda jerk just without the syrups yeah right okay and then so the and then they start to innovate on that and they make it cold and does that kind of catch on then yeah, and that that eventually, with kind of enough nudging and enough braver <laughs> customers who happen by, um, you know, starts leading to people going, "Well, I'll, I'll have a cold soda." So that becomes part of thing. At the same time, people starting to because a lot of people doing this are drugstore owners, they're pharmacists as well, um, because you know they're, they're the people with the skill to kind of make the equipment and do the play around with these minerals or. So, oh. so, and they have the acid for you know carbonation that they need. So it, it's kind of a natural step for them that they're, they're essentially chemists. They kind of roughly know what they're doing. It's pretty easy for them to get started. So they sort of introduce soda fountains in their drugstores, and then it's like, well, actually, we've got all these kind of different syrups and elixirs that we're using to make our strange medicines. Um, let's start using that to make soda. So, you know, again, it starts with simple things like, do you want a strawberry soda or raspberry soda or, you know, whatever kind of one fruit kind of combinations. But then it starts going into, you know, starts crossing over with the whole paint and medicine idea. So you you get things like um, Moxie, if you're familiar with that. That sounds familiar, yeah. Yeah, so that, that was basically a... So I believe it's still on sale. It's very much kind of based in Maine. I mean, it used to be huge and bigger than Coca-Cola, but it's these days it's kind of just in in Maine, really. Um, But essentially that started off as, I'm trying to think what its full name was off the top of my head. I've slightly forgotten, but it's kind of Moxie Nerve Tonic. Something like that was its original name. And it was really just medicine. It's like one of those kind of, kind of strange kind of woo-woo things. It's like, oh, yeah, it's going to cure your depression and your diphtheria and your syphilis and everything else we can think of. It's going to cure that. Sure. Um, and basically, we start carbonating it and presenting it as a soda. And so it's this, it's an unusual drink because it's, it's kind of almost bitter. Mm-hmm. It's quite strange for a soda because it's, it's like, this isn't sweet. It's kind of bitter and that that's because it was based on the paint and medicine kind of angle so you sort of had that coming in whereas all the different flavors are coming across from the paint and medicine well where okay well well we're we stick this in because that's good for curing this and we think and so you start getting all this other stuff mixed in and the flavors start evolving into stranger and stranger tastes instead of just kind of plain old oh this one tastes of lemon Right. Yeah. Cause were they, so were they kind of selling them or marketing them as like a, like a health tonic type of thing that'll cure everything rather than like a, a tasty drink. So it didn't really matter if it tasted good. It was kind of a combination of both. For Moxie, I, I think the tasting good came a bit, a bit later in their marketing. They, they were pushing the health angle a bit more, but if you look at something like Coca-Cola, which also came out of that paint and medicine world, um, it was very much kind of here's a refreshing tasty drink but it's also going to you know do you lots of good with the and, and this is in case you're watching, kind of 1886 it had cocaine and cola nut which is a very rich 
kind of caffeine rich nut in it so you know it, it, it had active substances um that they were long gone eventually so you know right. long gone but you know when it started you know it was like well we're gonna throw in cocaine which was a wonder drug at the time and perfectly legal right yeah it made you feel great why not have cocaine huh yeah it became very popular moorish <laughs> <laughs> Man, okay, so that's so that I mean, I swear, like kids on the playground would always say that, like, hey, you know, Coca Cola has cocaine in it, but that's that was actually true at one point. Yeah, I mean, long before, I mean, I, I, I'd be surprised if anyone from those days is still alive at this point, but um, yeah, originally it was, I mean, that's where the, the name comes from. It's um, cocaine was the core ingredient for it, it was, I mean, it wasn't huge amounts, so. I mean, from what I can tell, it was roughly equivalent to like a third of a line of Coke. So it's, I mean, it's still Coke. <laughs> it's um, Seems like a good amount, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's um, so you know, for, it's a fair bit, fair bit. Um, so, and you know, and it, it was a ripoff as well. I mean, it was based on this European drink that had cocaine in it. Um, that was popular with European celebrities. So he, he was kind of just borrowing an idea that was already on the market. And so there were lots of these drinks around with all kinds of substances in them because most of the stuff was legal. And I mean, everyone thought cocaine was brilliant at that time. In 1886, cocaine's like, well, we take it, feel wonderful. And now I can do lots of things. And oh, it's great for you know, as an anesthetic in surgery, you know, what a wonderful drug we've discovered, you know, I can right. put out in there. Um, and, you know, it took a few years before people realized it's really bad for you and highly addictive. Um, yeah. And sort of moved to banning it. So, you know, it, it's a bit, I suppose it's a bit like tobacco in that way. You know, the years sure. where people thought, this is great stuff. And then kind of, oh, we're, Coming millions, um, so that was kind of where soda was at that time. Right, yeah. And then, so jumping back to to Coca Cola specifically, so you said it was it was kind of co- called Coca for the cocaine, but then cola for the cola nut. Yeah, that's right. So it's um sort of nut that grows on trees in Africa, sort of I suppose sort of Nigeria, kind of that that sort of area of Africa. And basically, it's very rich in caffeine. So um, people in that part of West Africa would, would just chew it for, mm. for a high, just chew, chew nuts. And basically, at some point in the 1800s, kind of European um, colonists, invaders kind of picked up on this and went, oh, this is interesting nut, and sort of started taking an interest in it. So the German army got really into it. They, they kind of thought, this is great, this will kind of energise our troops. It was the Prussians then, but, you know, this will energise our troops and be useful for that. So it started sort of spreading in medical literature. It's like, oh, this is another kind of wonder drug we've, we've found that will do wonderful things. And it, it was basically just caffeine. I mean, coffee delivers much the same hits mm-hmm. as a coconut does. Um, so, but, you know, it had the exoticness that, coffee had lost by that point so essentially putting that in was john pemberton the creator of coca's way of going oh i've got the latest kind of cool ingredient to to add in well when you mix cocaine with caffeine too i'm sure you get quite a jolt 
that's yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's pretty certain it did kind of give you a perk. <laughs> you know, it's not going to be kind of. Oh, I just. I mean, the, I mean, one of the funny stories is. Um, we might get into this later, but Asa Candler, the guy who really founded the Coca-Cola company itself and ended up buying the rights from John Pemberton, his first ex- he, he used to get these very bad migraines. And basically, one day he, remem- he had one and he remembers some friends said, oh, you know, if you've got a headache, you should try some Coca-Cola. And so he went to nearest soda fountain in Atlanta, kind of, drunk Coca-Cola and then felt a lot better. Right. <laughs> Decided to buy the company. Um, so, you know, it kind of seems like, well, it kind of must have had an effect if you're going to really notice it from just one drink. Yeah, sure. So I didn't realize, so some, so an individual and in, kind of invented the Coca-Cola, you know, formula or whatever as it was then, but then another guy bought the rights to it and turned it into kind of the bigger Coca-Cola. Yeah, so it's a bit of a kind of messy and slightly sort of tale. So John, John Pemberton um, fought in the Civil War and he, he got shot in the Battle of Columbus and basically kind of his intestines were kind of seriously damaged. And so basically for years afterwards, he was taking morphine to relieve himself from the pain. So sure. You know, it, it would reoccur. He'd become bedridden and unable to do anything. He'd be running out of money. So he got into this thing of kind of, oh, I'll sell a part of the company here and part of the company there. And he kind of, he had a business partner who, and he did it behind this guy's back. So you know, this guy sort of basically finds out John Pemberton's kind of sold off the company. And, <laughs> and, and and so he, he's kind of doing all this stuff. It, Coca-Cola's struggling because, you know, one day he's a the next day he's high on morphine in bed. And so it, it's really kind of turning into a bit of a disaster at that point. And Asa Candler kind of comes along and he, he was already a rich pharmacist in Atlanta. He was a very wealthy man and kind of went, after having that drink of Coca-Cola, you know, this is something special. I, you know, I should buy this business. So he basically went to John Pemberton, who was pretty much dying at that point for mm. what he had left of the company, and then basically tra- tracked down all of the individuals who had bought bits of Coke, really? the Coca-Cola rights and bought them all out. So it, it took him a few years to sort of capture all the rights but eventually he just bought it all bought it all back together and created the coca-cola company right wow so during this time is there is there kind of like a lot of soda brands like that like coca-cola or is it more like you go to a a soda fountain at a pharmacist and the pharmacist just kind of mixes up stuff most of it would have been that most of it would have been you go to your local pharmacist and ask for you know, a, a particular drink like a, a celery flavored soda, um, the or black cherry one. There wasn't that much branding around. There were companies that were making um, those flavorings, but there were relatively few brands in the way we think of. You know, things like you know, it was really sort of start at that time. So Moxie, which I mentioned earlier, they had already come along and. You know, at that time, they were mainly concentrated in the Northeast and expanding out. And so they, they were the biggest brand. But 
you know, no one in the South knew who they were. No one in the West knew who they were. They were very much kind of a, I guess, a, is it Yankee would kind of encompass that kind of area. So, you know, it was very much kind of the, the Yankee soda um, and Coca-Cola when it started sort of became the Southern soda. So, you know, they both kind of grew within their regions initially. I see. Okay. And then, so is that like, cause we were kind of mentioning the bottle and stuff. So at this point is it, is kind of the only way to get it, at least in the U S to go to like a, a soda fountain or, and then when, I guess, when does kind of the bottle, the bottled stuff come into play? Yeah. So, so Coca-Cola's business model was to sell the syrup to the soda fountains. Sure. It didn't want to do bottling. So basically contact the soda fountains go, we're set, sell you our barrels of, syrup and then you can make coca-cola to serve to people in your soda fountain moxie went down different route it decided bottles were the future um and started bottling up its its drink um so in a way they both kind of went down completely different paths unfortunately for moxie there was no refrigeration at at this point in time which is a slight problem because warm soda is not really anyone's favorite um so you know that didn't help it also made it harder for them to expand they weren't just shipping a a keg they were shipping heavy bottles everywhere so you know it it actually probably was their undoing getting into bottles that early on yeah they were Um, early yeah and they they were also kind of expanding themselves coca-cola ended up franchising its bottling which which you know, was really how they sort of took over. So for Moxie to keep expanding, it basically had to open another bottling plant itself and buy all the bottles and all the caps and all the staff and then distribute it everywhere. And it's very expensive and hard work to do back then. Um, Coca-Cola company, Ace Candler, he didn't want anything to do with bottles. He thought bottles were dirty. He thought bottling plants were filthy and disgusting. And, and they were at the time, you know, the, the quality controls we have now didn't exist then. Um, so he, he refused, but there were these two lawyers from um, Tennessee basically kept bugging him for years, kind of going, we want to bottle Coca-Cola. And eventually they wore him down and he sold them the rights to bottle Coca-Cola across America for pretty much nothing, just royalties and a few kind of conditions on the quality. And the, you kind of think, well, they've probably failed. But in the meantime, they'll buy a few barrels of Coca-Cola syrup, so I'll make some money and sure. more for them. Um, so they went off and they built their factory, and it was a disaster. Um, everything Aza Candler said was right. It was expensive. Um, it was very hard to do and they couldn't raise enough money to open another possible plant. So they decided to franchise. They just chopped up the entire United States into tiny territories mm-hmm. and just went around selling the rights to bottle Coca-Cola across the whole nation. So I think in the end there was like 1,500 independent bottlers that were making Coca-Cola and putting it into bottles all over the country. Wow. And because of the deal, Coca-Cola, the Coca-Cola company couldn't sell to those bottlers. It had to sell to the two lawyers in Tennessee who would then, you know, put up their markup and then pass it on. And they, 
I mean, they they got incredibly rich from almost doing nothing in the end. Right. Because yeah. in the end, it's just like, yeah, we'll buy a barrel and just send it straight to them. We don't we don't need to handle it. We'll just charge our markup later. And yeah. so I mean, it's a wonderful middleman position they got themselves into. But mm-hmm. because of that. Coca-Cola itself didn't need to find the money to open all these bottling plants. Um, it was just like local companies that were already doing, some of them were already bottling some local sodas themselves and just bought the license. Some started up. It was basically all these bottlers, independent bottlers, took all the risk and spread Coca-Cola far and wide. Right. No, that makes total sense. That's so, I love stories like that where it's like, you know, just kind of the idea for those two guys to franchise it is what made Coca-Cola spread so big so quickly. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Coca-Cola, who knows where they'd be? You know, they might be like Moxie if it wasn't for those guys. Yeah, really. Um, so kind of jumping back to maybe like the, like the soda fountain thing, I'm, I'm curious, like, especially when they're putting, you know, drugs that like elixirs and cocaine and you know different types of things in these how does like a like a soda fountain compare to like a just a bar are they competing are they similar or are they totally different um they're kind of competing so i mean you've got the temperance movement happening around then as well so soda fountains were the kind of place you i I mean they were popular with women because saloons and bars definitely weren't back then um but it was also you know if you if you disapprove of alcohol you'll go to a soda fountain it it, it kind of filled the same role but without alcohol um and a much kind of probably quite a nicer (laughs) environment than some of the saloon type bars that would have been around in those days so um you know it definitely feel that sort of similar i guess like a coffee shop today i guess that would probably be the nearest thing we have i mean it's sort of slightly different but i i put it in the same bracket as that right it's somewhere you could go and hang out and meet somebody and you know get a little jolt from something but uh it doesn't have the you know the bad image that a a bar does necessarily or or whatever i guess yeah yeah and not many people would be going there you know, to get high on Coca-Cola. Yeah. <laughs> See what I mean? It's like, I mean, it, I, I don't, I'm not even sure how people quite use cocaine back then, but, you know, if, if you were taking cocaine for that, you'd probably just buy it over the counter and head home. I'm quite sure what the cocaine fiend's habits were in the 1800s, but yeah. soda fountains weren't really a place where you'll go to get high. It was just kind of, we'll go and have a chat with people and hang out. So it's okay. much like going to a, a Starbucks or whatever today. It's kind of like, mm-hmm. oh, we'll just be there. Yeah. No, that's a good comparison. I can understand that. Um, do you know, because there's a place that I, I've been to a couple of times. It's up in Oregon, so I have to hit it when I'm traveling from L.A. up north. But they, it's, it's in an old pharmacy. It's been there forever, and they have the soda fountain that's still there, and it's awesome. You can walk up. But they sell um, phosphates there. Do you, oh, you know wow. what? Pho- yeah, it, it's awesome, but I, I just order it. I don't even know what a phosphate is. Do you know <laughs> what, what that means? Yeah, so it's, um, I mean, basically it's kind of a type of acid so you, you get phosphoric acid in soda anyway which is like this kind of yeah, 
it's really hard to describe flavors. Um, it, it's described as the kind of bite. Of okay. Something like Coca-Cola is that kind of slightly acidy, sour ting that kind of lurks on sure. the surface and sweetness. Um, but phosphates were kind of a slightly, from memory, a slightly more intense version of that. And I've only tried them once myself, so it's kind of hard to remember exactly how I tasted it. But um, they, they were huge. Um, you know, there's a whole sort of range of sodas that were big back then that have kind of faded away. Like egg sodas were massive. Yeah, like um, egg cream. And, yeah, but eat, sort of not like the egg creams exist now where it's kind of chocolatey soda. It's like with actual egg. Really? <laughs> Mixed into being frothy kind of. I mean, it sounds gross, but sounds maybe horrible. it wasn't. <laughs> It's, um, I haven't been brave enough to try it with the home soda street. I've kind of yeah, chickened right. out. <laughs> it's like, but yeah, I'd be like, oh, raw egg soda. <laughs> I don't think I want to go there. But, yeah, but there, there were lots of crazy things like that. And I mean, there was even, um, a, was it uranium they used? There was a uranium soda at one point, you know, in Whoa. the kind of, hey, we don't really know what you radioactivity is but it seems cool <laughs> I'm right, yeah. it didn't catch on for very long but it's sure yeah man that's so crazy yeah because it and that it, it's so fun because this place i go to they have you know all these different all the different flavor phosphates or whatever and you could put mix and mash them together so i'll get this one called the dirty monkey and it's it's like two chocolate like little tablets they put in there like two chocolate ones and then a banana one and it just all kind of fizzes up and becomes this pretty disgusting drink but it's fun to have <laughs> yeah and, and there's so many of them i mean one of the things i i found in on the archives going through was this sort of soda fountain recipe manual and it's, it's a big book you know kind of good, good inch fit just with recipe after recipe of how to do different sodas i mean it's you know there was so so many of these and out there and it, it was much more experimental i mean there was one way called su- which people called suicide which they go and go oh give me a suicide soda and it's like they see all the flavors wow. <laughs> in one drink which i mean that must just be disgusting but you know people are like well, hey i'll just experiment and i i think it's that thing back back then people weren't quite so rigid about what the flavors would be and so it's like well i'll just mix it up you know we can because basically I've got a list of ingredients here and I can put in anything I want. You know, the soda fountain guy is not going to object. And I think this where you get things like Dr. Pepper coming out of, you know, it's a, hey, let's just experiment with lots of strange flavors. And, you know, with Dr. Pepper, it created something that, depending on your taste, is either wonderful or horrific. <laughs> it's like people seem very divided on Dr. Pepper, but it's, you know, it, I mean, what, what does Dr. Pepper taste like apart from Dr. Pepper? There is, it doesn't yeah. taste like anything else. It's, you know, it's its own unique thing. And I think that comes out of that experimental kind of attitude they had. Right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So do, what about um, root beer? How does that get started? Do you know what the origin of that is? Yeah, so root, root beer kind of came down a, a different path. So unlike um, sort of soda, it, it was brewed. Um, so in, in Europe, in kind of Middle Ages, you had these things that 
were called small beers. Um, and they were things like um, Dandelion and Burdock and Ginger Beer mm. and things like that. And they were soft drinks, but they were brewed slightly. So slightly fermented, small, very small amounts of alcohol, which were kind of, you know, at the time the water was pretty dirty. So, you know, it would kill off some of the bacteria. So it was kind of a good thing. So basically people would just kind of use herbs and random things for flavouring, which is where in the UK you get this drink called dandelion and burdock, which is just kind of random plants. Um, and so this, this idea kind of led to root beer in the US. And it was the same thing. People go out and pick wintergreen and various other kind of herbs, whatever they had locally around and they kind of cook it up and ferment it. And when it ferments, it bubbles. So it, it, it's a light bubbling. It's not like a kind of super fizzy Pepsi or something. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's kind of naturally creates it. Now, you know, most of the things you get today, like A&W or Mug, you know, that they're actually root beer flavoured sodas. Essentially, sure. not technically root beer. Root beer, technically you have to kind of brew. But, you know, as, as essentially it's kind of led to the same path, but down a slightly different route. Okay. No, that makes sense. It's kind of fun. Like, I feel like if you have a, a soda stream, you could experiment on your own and go get weird flavors and, and herbs or whatever and make some crazy weird things just like they were doing. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> one of the things I um, did when I, I was sort of working on the book is found some or recipes and decided to try and make some. and. Ooh. Basically, the only place we could find that would do the kind of um, essential oils that were needed was a health food shop. Right. <laughs> so we went to like, oh, that one, that one, that one. And obviously they were thinking we were going to do something very kind of, I don't know, mystical, <laughs> very kind of, you know, healthy with it. And they're like, oh, so what are you doing? It's like, oh, making Coca-Cola's recipe um, without the Coca. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but so you know it's you can just do it at home i mean it you know with soda stream you can just try and experiment i mean it's easy enough so were you able to make the uh kind of the original coke recipe yeah i, I don't it's hard to know because I, I suppose the thing is like am i making it well or am i making it badly mm. and i couldn't quite tell and it didn't taste great it kind of tasted vaguely of Coke, but it's like, this could be right or it could be wrong. And I can't really know. So it was like a little path went down research wise. So kind of like, mm, I can't be sure actually if this, this is my incompetence of making soda or right, the yeah. it wasn't that great. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Cause was there a time, like how did the trans, like the shift work from when they stopped kind of using it as like, you know, something to cure things and it had, you know, drugs in it and stuff for, and then it can, it became like a, a good tasting, sweeter drink. When did that happen? Well, I mean, essentially Coca-Cola was always quite sweet. And what, what happened for Coca-Cola was just the removal of, um, first the cola nut, got replaced by synthetic caffeine because it was cheaper mm. um, and also the cocaine, which was really just the result of society's attitude kind of switching over. Whereas originally it was fine, you know, kind of tide started turning against it. And, you know, Coco really struggled with that. I mean, this is the end of the 19th century kind of period. And they were kind of terrified because their name basically said it's got, 
cocaine and cola nut in it. Um, what happens if we take that out? Because trademark law was pretty embryonic at that time. It wasn't like it is today where it's like, well, I trademark the name. It doesn't necessarily matter if those, it means those exact ingredients are in there. Yeah. So there was this big fear that you take those out, the trademark's invalid. Um, so they were doing things like, can we just chop down the amount of cocaine to a trace? Would that be enough? But no, that's not enough because they got banned. And they went to extraordinary lengths. They found this um, chemical works and got got them to take um, cocaine, coca leaves with cocaine in them and extract all the cocaine so they could use leaves, the cocaine-free leaves, to kind of put, put a little trace of that in the drink so they could still say, we've got, got the coca in there. So, you know, they, they really struggled with it for, for years, which is, and there were lots of kind of competitors who were still kind of, with very similar sounding names, just trying to, you know, ride on the coattails going, hey, we, we still want cocaine. Um, so, you know, they, which is probably why we, you know, this idea that Coca-Cola has cocaine still lingers on so long because it, it took them a while to really extract themselves from that kind of stench. But they, they were kind of quite desperate to get away from it. Asa Candler, who was running the company at the time, you know, didn't have much truck with alcohol, let alone cocaine. So he he was very religious and very keen to kind of Mm. wash his drink away from the sort of evils of drugs. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And then what about the uh, kind of about the Coke bottle? Because that was a pretty innovative thing where it's it's its own special shape, different from everything else, right? Yeah. Yeah. So part, part of that goes back to the lack of refrigeration. So. What used to happen is, um, in, say, a country store, you'll have a bucket of water with ice and all the soda pop bottles will be shoved in there. And, of course, at the time, it's paper labels. Put a bottle with paper label into water, it'll come off. Yeah. And everyone's used, and there's no consistency in the bottles that Coca-Cola's using or pretty much anyone else is using at this time. So it's kind of like lucky dip. It's like, right, I've got a bottle of brown stuff is this a root beer is this a coke is this oh. dr pepper or something else you, you yeah literally have to kind of open it to, to find out so it got to a point where coca-cola kind of realized this is a problem because it makes it easier for people to imitate us and get away with it so they decided the solution to this was a bottle of their own design and they ran this competition kind of inviting their hundreds of bottlers to come up with the ultimate Coca-Cola bottle. And word of this got to a glassmaker in Indiana who basically came up with the Coca-Cola bottle. They, they actually, um, you know, they, it was kind of these weird contours, which they got from um, the coconut, the nut that creates chocolate. Um, so they, they looked up the wrong thing and thought, oh, we there we go. That's the thing that's in Coca-Cola. So they got confused about cola nuts and <laughs> cocoa. So that, that's what it was based on. It was meant to resemble those sort of weird contours and ribs were meant to resemble the um, coconut. Um, so essentially they made that bottle with its sort of distinctive shape. So if you reached in, you could just by touch alone in, in this tank of water with all these other bottles go, 
oh yeah, this is a Coca-Cola bottle. There so I know it from the shape. And of course they can patent the shape, trademark the shape, and sue anyone who tries and copies it. So you know, you it go. was it was kind of a, a defensive move really to stop copycats and make sure c- customers were buying Coca-Cola and not any knockoffs. Yeah. Very smart. That's that's such a uh logical thing to do. It makes sense. And that they would even uh didn't those old bottles have Coca-Cola embossed in the glass, like the logo too, so that you didn't have to do the paper logo? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, and also the bottle cap, they started printing Coca-Cola oh. on, onto the bottle cap as well. Right. So, you know, it, it was, a, you know, it's quite an intriguing piece of design. I mean, it, it's barely changed since then. You know, they pretty much got it right the first time around. It's like, yeah, this is the perfect piece of packaging. Yeah, and I mean, they even ran an advert. um, It must be about ten, fifteen years ago now, where it's just a billboard and a picture of a silhouette of the bottle. And you know, they don't even have to put the name Coca Cola on it. It's just like, yeah, you know what that is. Yeah, (laughs) Um, you know, they don't even need to tell you. You can see the shape of that bottle and say Coca Cola. Truly, yeah. Even like just that, the specific shade of red that they use, that like they just put that on a board. I swear you would think it was Coca Cola. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. They really, they got to us. Their, their marketing is insane. Yeah. Um, they did it brilliantly. Like, <laughs> wow. Yeah. You, I, you got to applaud them. I mean, it works. It's worked for w- over 100 years. Yeah. Um, this is a story I've heard about, but I want to ask you is there, is there kind of a, a story to how Fanta got started? Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, so World War II breaks out. Um, and that time, Coca-Cola's been trying for, what would it have been, sort of 20 years to break into Europe. It's wanted mm-hmm. to go international and it's hammering away at Europe. And there's lots of things working against them that Europe doesn't have quite the same weather or culture of um, drinking soda to work, for it to work on, but it, it's, it's basically been a disaster, except in Germany, Ooh. where in the 30s it's like Coca Cola's finally got a foothold in Europe, it's going well. Oh, there's this kind of Nazis taking over, um, and it's kind of doing doing well, selling I think it was like a million cases a year of Coca Cola, finally kind of broken through, and of course, the war happened, so immediately. Imports to um, Germany are restricted. You know, British are not letting anything through, and you know, there's not really a way to get Coca-Cola syrup from US into Nazi Germany. So, uh, essentially, Coca-Cola Germany is cut off from the rest of the company and just becomes this sort of German Coca-Cola, which is rapidly running out of syrup to make Coca-Cola. So, the guy in charge, Max Keith. It's basically trying to think of ways to save the company. And at the same time, it's war, so ingredients are getting restricted. Um, so he hits on the idea of basically using the leftovers. So he went to cider presses and all the kind of squash remains of apples in the cider press. Oh, I'll take that and use that to make a apple flavored drink or, you know, oh, it's some orange peel. I'll use that. So basically using whatever random scraps you can use, uses that to make um, another fizzy drink to sell to Germans during the war, which gets named Fanta. So, 
I mean, he, he even described it as the drink made from the leftovers of the leftovers. I mean, it was... <laughs> Man, but, that's, that's crazy. So, yeah, it's just literally made out of the... Uh, just because the, the war restricted so much stuff, it was just all that was left over, and it was just kind of these fruity flavors. Yeah, and he was sort of doing it all over Europe, because obviously as the Fed right kind of took over, kind of other Coca-Cola companies existed in, say, the Netherlands or France, but suddenly, oh, well, you're now part of Nazi Germany, so um, Coca-Cola Germany is now in charge of you. And they, they were doing things like, right, okay, well, you need to make this Fanta-type thing as, as well. So, you know, you have these, like, variations of Fanta kind of all over the kind of, during the Third Reich kind of era. And, I mean, you know, it was essentially a way to keep the Coca-Cola business going um, during wartime and, and, you know, kind of help protect some of the other people from getting shut down as well. So in, in a way, he kind of saved Coca-Cola's presence in continental Europe at, at that time by doing yeah. that. So did, do you know if the uh, name Fanta comes from anything or if it means something? Uh, it, it meant, like, fantastic. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> so, that, 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 that was it. <laughs> it wasn't the most... Some, yeah, there's not much of a story behind the name. He just asked his employees, kind of right. come up with the name and went just went that. <laughs> and that, that was kind of it. Right, yeah. Okay, I was wondering if it was like some some weird Nazi propaganda thing or something like that, but not quite. Yeah. No, and essentially, I mean, obviously when the war ended, funds stopped being produced. Um, and I think it was about 10 years before it came back. Really? Yeah. So, you know, the sort of orange flavor one, which is, I, I guess we think of as the original, wasn't the one being made in kind of World War II Germany. Um, it was basically, they revived the brand because essentially in mainland Europe, it had become quite a popular brand because it was pretty much the only soda around at, at that time. So it had name recognition. Uh, so it was kind of, that helped it sort of come back and help Coca-Cola go, well, we've already got this brand that, you know, Fanta's not a bad name. Yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. I love that story. Um, So then when does does Pepsi kind of come on and hit the scene? So Pepsi was um, a few years after um, Coca-Cola, not not very long. So Coca-Cola starts being a big success in the South. And it's essentially invented a new flavor. So, you know, a bit like I was saying about Dr. Pepper, um, Coca-Cola is the flavor of cola. It's the first cola ever created. No one's tasted that flavor before. But lots of people are like, oh, wow, this is wonderful. Let's make a cola too. Yeah. Um, which, you, probably, you know, now you'd think, oh, that's a, you know, you're going to get in trouble with lawyers now. Um, but I, I think back then it's just, well, you know, we can just make this stuff in our soda fountain. We'll make a version of that. And Pepsi was just one of those. It was a pharmacist um, who basically just in North Carolina, he had a he had a soda fountain. He went, well, I'll make a cola of my own. He he decided he he wanted a kind of drug free soda, so that would be good for the stomach. So he put Pepsin in it, kind of an enzyme to try and help with digestion. He didn't put in cocaine, he didn't put in any caffeine. Um, and Pepsin led to the name Pepsi. 
Right. So he, he starts making that just in his um, pharmacy. And then, you know, he's seeing Coca-Cola getting big. He's seeing other soda companies making it big. So he goes, oh, I'll try that as well. So he opens a bottling plant. He starts producing it, set, you know, expanding in much the same way as Coca-Cola did, you know, licensing it out to bottlers. And Pepsi became pretty big um, until starts in the 1920s when essentially so it had grown i mean i suppose it had been over 30 to 40 years it had grown into it's probably more regional brand at that time rather than a fully national one Mm -hmm. but it was doing pretty well it was a kind of serious competitor um but after the first world war sort of um europe's sugar beet fields were kind of completely ruined there was no sugar bean produced and so kind of sugar prices start going up after the war after controls lifted and the guy running pepsi gets worried buys loads and loads of sugar at a very high price and then all the farms in europe start producing sugar again and the price collapses so he's basically got this hugely expensive sugar mountain that means his soda is extra expensive he's borrowed to the hilt to do it and basically the whole company goes down um so basically he he kind of lost it and pepsi was kind of dead that that was it sort of you know from coca-cola's point of view it's like hey that's good (laughs) you know yeah and another guy bought the rights tried to do something failed again so basically by the early 30s you know pep you know people were just some guy owns Pepsi, but it's not doing very well. It's kind of like it's terribly disastrous um, soda that no one's really heard of anymore. It's kind of, oh, some old people remember back in the day there was a Pepsi in sort of in their soda fountain. Um, until this guy called um, Charles Guth, um, who ran a chain of sweet shops in New York City, got involved. He, he basically he had soda fountains in his sweet shop, his candy shops, and he sold Coca-Cola. But he, he was, I mean, he was a mean man. <laughs> he was not a nice guy. Um, but, you know, he was a hard-nosed businessman. And basically, he looked at how much money he was spending on Coca-Cola syrup. With all, he's, I think he had about 200 stores and decided, I deserve a discount. So he contacts Coca-Cola company in Atlanta, going, yeah, you owe me a discount. I'm buying so much Coca-Cola syrup. You need to discount mm-hmm. this for me. And Coca-Cola go, no, we don't give anyone discounts ever. Sure. And it's like, well, you don't do that. I'm going to sell some other cola. And Coca-Cola kind of like, yeah, like, like what? There are yeah. no other colas. So this guy goes, well, wait and see. He goes and buys Pepsi, puts it into all these stores, and that is really the start of Pepsi coming back from the dead and turning into this nightmare brand for Coca-Cola. Wow. Um, so, I mean, basically, if they gave him a discount, no one would have heard of Pepsi at this point. Yeah, Coca-Cola, like, inadvertently, like, rebirthed Pepsi. Yeah. <laughs> Man, that's such a fun story. Um, and then I want to ask a question too about, cause like you talk about colas and stuff and Coca-Cola was kind of the first one to do it. So when we think of a cola and like the flavor and taste of a cola, is that 
from the cola plant? That's kind of what we're getting. No, it's kind of a it's kind of mix of various kind of vegetables. I mean, the kind of cola nut was really just caffeine, and mm. it's, it's not the overwhelming flavor of it. I mean, when John Pemberton first cooked up, one thing you notice is that the cola nut has a really strong taste, and it's not. It's very bitter and not very nice. So he actually cut it back massively from his original plan to kind of the merest amount he could get away with. So um, that was never, so it was named after the cola nut, but the cola nut was never a big part of the flavor. I see. So it's just kind of this artificially created flavor that we call cola. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially a combination of different vegetable extracts that, and, and no one, you know, it's kind of what the precise kind of mix is. It's, you know, obviously they're not sharing that. <laughs> but yep. Yeah, no, yeah. just various. Okay, cool. No, I was always kind of curious about that, so that makes sense. Um, Man, well, this is great. Yeah, we've been over here for over an hour now. This is such a great story. Oh, wow. I, lo- I love this, Tristan. <laughs> yeah. um, is there, I mean, we'll kind of wrap it up. Is there anything else that's, you know, a fun part of the story or anything else we should share that's significant? Oh wow! Um, oh god, there's there's so much. I mean, it is. I, I guess the thing I, I love about soda is it's such a bizarre industry. So I mean, I suppose one thing I open my book with is the space race that Coke and Pepsi had in the ni- nineteen eighty five. It's like who was going to be the first cola in space? Oh. And I mean, it's you know, I mean, they, they spent a fortune doing this it was like this massive publicity stunt and basically it starts with coca-cola kind of getting in touch with nasa and going around we're, we're going to arrange to make this special soda dispenser and can to go up in space so the astronauts can try a coca-cola in space and then that's a big victory in the cola wars and sure you know, and then pepsi kind of finds out about this with about two months to go before the shuttle launch i guess we got beat on that shuttle. So, you know, they assemble this team and, you know, they've got to get through every single NASA process and step to be space worthy with their can. So, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's this amazing different where they're just racing against home game, right? How, how do we get past this paint test? Of, you know, Coco has had like a whole year of highly trained scientists kind of figuring it out. And Pepsi's just like, build something quick, <laughs> anything. And basically what they created was a, essentially a spray can. Um, I mean, since you're doing some video, I have a replica. <laughs> Whoa. So this oh, my is, gosh. <laughs> the Pepsi space can. Um, so basically it looks like a spray cream pan. <laughs> yeah. And that's essentially what it is. Really? Yeah. So it's made out of steel and it basically kind of, when you push it down, um, push down the nozzle, um, basically there was a bag of, um, kind of bunk. Oh, try can't remember the exact chemical off the top of my head, but basically it created the gas, caused the reaction, which basically carbonated the Pepsi that was sitting in there and then shoots it out through the nozzle. Wow. Did it come out liquidy? Like normal Pepsi? Uh, it came out frothy, apparently, said the astronauts. And kind of, there's some great photos of them playing around with it because it 
if you didn't put it into your mouth, it kind of came out in a spear-like bubble. So, you know, you would have these kind of little globes of Pepsi just kind of floating around inside the space shuttle. So, wow. you know, I mean, it, it, it looked very cool, but apparently it was horrible to drink because it was warm. And zero gravity, there's no gravity pulling down on your stomach to keep your contents down. Oh, so yeah. you don't want to burp in space. Right. Man, that's so interesting. So, so what was the uh, Coca-Cola design? What was their bottle like? Uh, their bottle was much more high-tech. Um, it sort of had like little switches for controlling the flow and the speed of the flow and kind of, you know, had this kind of Velcro thing for sticking to walls. I mean, it was much more fancy. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, it was all just a great big waste of time for for Coca-Cola yeah. because Pepsi got on there too. And so, you know, basically, you know, no one won that race, but because Pepsi was there, it was like, oh, great, yeah, yeah. <laughs> did all this. And I mean, the astronauts try, <laughs> did try Coca-Cola first because Coca-Cola had signed up first. So technically kind of Coca-Cola is the first one to be drunk in space, mm-hmm. but not the first one to get to space, which is kind of the glory they were looking for. Right, yeah. Man, that's so great. Yeah, I'm sure there's so many good stories and like marketing wars like that between all these different sodas and everything. And and yeah, we didn't even dive into like, you know, artificial sweeteners and in diet sodas and all this kind of stuff. There's there's so much to the story. It's crazy, huh? Yeah, it's yeah, it's I, I love the industry. It's just the craziest, craziest business. Mm-hmm. It's just I mean, it's sort of such an inessential product that's kind of done so much and gone to such extremes to sort of sell its basically its fizzy water. Yeah, really. That's all it is. Okay, well, this is good. I, I feel like this is kind of a good uh, cliffhanger almost. Like we should, if people listening, they want to learn some more and get into all that extra, the other stuff that we didn't cover, uh, they should grab your book, your book, uh, Fizz, How Soda Shook Up the World. Um, should we send people anywhere specific to get that? Um, I, I think that it's available in lots of places. I mean, Amazon's an obvious place where it's on sale, but you know, plenty of other bookstores out there. Got it. Okay, cool. Well, I'll have a link to to Amazon for folks listening, but uh, check out your your local bookstores or or any of that stuff too. I guess, huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I probably have to order it. <laughs> it's been a few years since it it was published. Right. No, that's fine though. Man, well, this is great. Seriously, Tristan, I, I love. I love learning these like almost like quirky little histories of things that are around us every day, but you never really even think about. So thanks for coming on and sharing all this stuff. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Well, there you have it. Episode 98 has come and gone. Now we're all a little smarter. We know a bit about soda, where it came from, the history of it, how it works, why it kind of tastes the way it does and how it was uh, kind of being used with some drugs in there, but now it's kind of just sweet and delicious. But uh, you can impress your friends at the Soda Fountain with the history of soda now. So thank you, Tristan, for being on and sharing that. Thanks to you, the listener, for listening and being here with me. Uh, I'm Travis DeRose. You can email me at travis at curiosityness.com. That's my email. And send me whatever you want to. Your ideas, thoughts, tips, uh, feedback, criticisms. Ooh. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Trav DeRose. I post on there sometimes about stuff, sometimes relating to podcasts that I do. 
and future things. So there's there's fun new stuff on there. Ah, whatever. This is just rambling. Uh, thanks for being here. See you in episode 99.